Hello from Houston. Welcome to the Highlights Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. And hello. Welcome to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Femi, and I'm a transactional attorney here in Houston. Um, Normally, we have Patrick, but Patrick is working on some very, very fun mediation matters, so um, I'll be handling this on my own, but I'm not here alone. Um, I am here with Catherine Curtis. Catherine Curtis is a partner at Pullman, Capuccio, and Pullen. She is a Chapter 7 and Chapter 11 bankruptcy trustee in the Southern District of Texas for the McAllen, Brownsville, Corpus Christi, and Laredo divisions. Catherine, welcome to the podcast studio. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So Catherine also represents creditors and debtors in Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 cases um, and debtors in Chapter 11 and Chapter 12 bankruptcy cases. And you you also work on Chapter 5 cases as well, right? Um, yes, I am a Subchapter 5 bankruptcy trustee. That is the uh, new and improved, I would say, um, essentially small business chapter 11 um, that uh, went into effect earlier this year. So um, that is another uh, type of trusteeship that I have. Right. Very cutting edge there. (laughs) Um, And so Catherine is an avid presenter on bankruptcy topics, and she's actually on the planning committee for bankruptcy CLE events throughout the Southern district of Texas. And uh, I remember we, uh, we were trying to figure out the right time to do this, and you were actually at one of these uh, webinars. Am I correct? So you're you do this quite often. I, I do. Um, I was at the Westbrook conference, which is just a really fantastic um, business um, and consumer uh, conference here um, in in Texas. So um, I'm just a really big nerd, and I love uh, bankruptcy. So that's cool. Presenting now, at CLEs is kind of my thing. Now, now this is Jay Westbrook? Yes, that is correct. Awesome, yeah. I, I'm i not going to lie. I chickened out on taking his uh, secure credit and bankruptcy class. Um, I, I do have two good friends of mine who took his class, I, I believe, and, um, or they, they took bankruptcy and they, they enjoyed it. So, um, Catherine graduated from UT Austin and received her JD from Texas Wesleyan School of Law, which is now Texas A&M. Um, so now we, uh, you know, we have a pretty big topic here where we're going to talk about bankruptcy. So, you know, I'm just thinking about the fact that the constitution has the word bankruptcy in it. Um, you know, that document provided an avenue for bankruptcy. So why, why is bankruptcy so fundamental in terms of, um, consumer protection? What is the goal of bankruptcy? Can you help us explain explain the situation? Sure. Um, I'll do my best. Um, I, I want to just say kind of my background is more consumer oriented. I ran okay. a consumer bankruptcy practice for, um, you know, close to 10 years. I worked for my mother's consumer practice, and then I ran my own practice before uh, getting appointed to be a trustee. So, um, you know, I really have 
that as kind of my my heart, right? And so I to me, the goal of bankruptcy is to allow people who have, you know, for whatever reason, cannot manage or service their debts, a way to reorganize, um, get a discharge of most of their debts, um, and be able to move on and get that fresh start. So, you know, what you typically see in the case laws, you know, the discharge is supposed to serve honest debtors, right? And if you go through the process and you do the things that you're supposed to do, like list all of your assets, attend the creditors meeting, um, you know, file your credit counseling course, your financial management course, um, you will be able to get a discharge of most of your debts. The ones that you can't are pretty clearly outlined in Section 523 of the code, like child support, um, recent tax debt, um, debts that were obtained by fraud, those types of things. Um, but really, it, the goal of bankruptcy and why I think it's so fundamental is that it, it gives people that opportunity to um, restart their financial lives. Um, right. So that's talking about bankruptcy from an individual level. From a corporate perspective, you you have some different things you need to think about because course, corporations don't get a discharge, right? So what you're looking at for a corporation is an orderly liquidation of its assets through uh, the trustee stepping in and administering those assets. Or in the case of a chapter 11, you are reorganizing the company uh, to be able to service its debts through a plan. So that's kind of the basic 30,000 feet overview of, of the way I see how bankruptcy is supposed to work. Okay. And so, you know, I think for the layman and, and myself included, whenever we think about bankruptcy, we think things have gone completely wrong. Is, is that the case? Is, is bankruptcy supposed to be this, you know, like ameliorative process or, or are there, you know, tons of different reasons for bankruptcies to occur, especially um, with respect to corporate um, corporate businesses and, and things like, like that? Well, on an individual level, I think that that perspective is probably correct because when I, I, I practice as a consumer bankruptcy attorney, you know, someone doesn't walk into my office wanting to file a bankruptcy thinking everything's just going super great, you know, in my life, I, they've lost a job. They had a medical event most commonly that has made it so that they cannot service their medical debt. Um, And even for small businesses, I think that's largely true. You know, you have a home health agency that can't uh, meet its payroll tax obligations, those types of things. I mean, it's, it doesn't mean that bankruptcy can't do good things and I, because I really believe in this process. I mean, it, it is something that can really help people. But um, the reasons that lead people to choose it as on a smaller scale um, certainly are events in their lives that they, they want to be able to move past. And so that's why that fresh start, especially for individual debtors, is so important. If you're talking about complex cases, like, uh, you know, a large retail bankruptcy, you know, or, or other type of bankruptcy, um, 
there may be other considerations that push them toward thinking that bankruptcy is a way to reorganize because there may be things that they can do in the code that they can't do outside of bankruptcy that will allow them to be able to hang on, you know, okay. pay their employees um, and, you know, emerge leaner and able to stay in the market. So um, while well, I, my history and experience is not in complex matters, you know, just being in bankruptcy as long as I have about 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. I know that about that side of it. So um, it's not to say that, you know, bad things happening in the market might push a company toward filing bankruptcy. It's not something that I think they would all just jump to do on a normal day if things are going really well. But right. On the other hand, the considerations in complex cases certainly are different than what you see in just your typical consumer debtor. Okay. Now, you know, focusing on this consumer bankruptcy, what are some of the common misconceptions that you see people have? Oh, goodness. Um, I think that's a really good question because, you know, people think um, they'll come in and say, oh, my gosh, you know, can I keep my house? You know, can right. will I lose everything? Um, and, of course, the answer to that is is no, right? Um, you know, 99.9% of the time. And, you know, just speaking as someone, you know, talking about a Texas resident, for example. Um, so the bankruptcy code lays out in Section 522 um, how... Um, what things a debtor has to meet in order to be able to claim either state or federal exemptions. And so um, exemptions are the laws that protect your property from being administered by a bankruptcy trustee or becoming part of what you have to pay back, essentially the amount of money you have to pay back um, in a Chapter 13 plan. Uh, So if you're a Texas resident and you've been living in Texas for at least um, two years uh, continuously prior to the filing, you can choose between Texas exemptions and federal exemptions. And Texas, you know, as, as many of us know, has one of the most generous exemption schemes with, when it comes to homestead uh, in the country. And so, you know, people that are very nervous about that should know that it, if, especially if you're a Texas resident, uh, yeah. you you really don't have to worry about your house being um, taken from you in a bankruptcy if everything's on the up and up. There are things that can put that at risk, you know, um, if you've acquired a homestead, you know, within a certain amount of time um, to filing bankruptcy. Um, you know, I'm not going to say right now that that's always the case, especially if there's fraud involved, but certainly, um, you know, for most people, that's not something that they need to worry about. Um, you know, they want to know that they can, you know, keep their belongings, as I said, their house. Um, and there's also this, this real feel of, of stigma. Yeah, you know? yeah. And they're like, it's going to be on my credit report forever. And it, it's not okay. It, it bankruptcy can appear on your credit report. Um, in the in the bankruptcy and judgment section for up to 10 years after the bankruptcy right. file. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're never going to get credit again. Okay. There is an entire mm-hmm. market of creditors who will just 
search for people on the PACER system to be able to um, try and lend them money, you know, after they get their discharge. So um, Interesting. it's, you're going to have a higher interest rate, probably, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that creditors can take into consideration, but it's, it's not something that is going to just, you know, end your life and you're never going to be able to do anything ever again. Um, so if you take the steps to rebuild your credit, like, pay your utility bills and other bills in full on time every month, you know, um, make sure that you slowly rebuild your credit. You're going to be able to probably have an increased credit score. Um, you know, if you take those steps, uh, at some point, you know, after you get out of the bankruptcy. So, um, I think those are a couple of misconceptions, um, that, that I can think of off the top of my head from individuals. Interesting. Now, I guess my other question is, those are the misconceptions. How many people actually go through bankruptcy? Um, just, you know, from, from your view, from a Texas standpoint, is it common? Is it rare? You know, what's the rate of, of bankruptcy? You know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I can tell you that right now, as compared to last year, um, you know, Filings are slightly up uh, in terms of where I am, and I'm basing that off the number of cases that I am being assigned as Chapter 7 trustee in the Southern District of Texas. Um, So to date, in November of 2020, the case count that I have is 24. In November of 2019, we had uh, had 20 cases. So um, Mm, we're not overall... I believe uh, that filings are still down, but there is a, an expectation within the bankruptcy practice community that that will um, increase, um, certainly for consumer filings, because of all of the major companies that we're seeing that are having to file for bankruptcy, uh, particularly yeah. in the retail space um, in the Southern District of Texas uh, and other places around the country. Uh, the oil and gas market was hit very hard. Um, and um, there are a lot of people, particularly here in the Rio Grande Valley, that are employed um, in the oil and gas business. So that is something that is going to be a major factor in causing people to file. So I think that, that the numbers will go up. But as compared to last year, it's um, holding steady for me, but I think overall slightly down. Okay. So I guess that bodes well, um, but you know, hope, hopefully um, the the numbers don't go up too much. Uh, but it just makes sense, you know, given given the current economic situation. I mean, that that number is subject to change, um, up or down. Um, all right, so let's jump into it. So, can you just explain what is a bankruptcy trustee? What is their role? in this process? And how did you find yourself, you know, just taking on this practice? So generally speaking, um, a bankruptcy trustee is appointed uh, by the United States trustee, um, which is a part of the Department of Justice and which oversees essentially the integrity of the bankruptcy system. And I get appointed by them um, in certain cases within the Southern District of Texas. And that could be in Chapter 7 cases and also in discrete cases where it's needed uh, in Chapter 11 cases. Right. So 
uh, the role of a, a trustee in a Chapter 7 case um, is to administer or liquidate um, assets of the bankruptcy estate. And what becomes a part of the bankruptcy estate, you got to look at Section 541 of the code, and it's pretty broad. Okay. You know, essentially, it's everything the debtor you know had an interest in um, on the date that um, it, he files the case. And something kind of interesting that I think people kind of forget about, especially if they're not practicing bankruptcy um, frequently, is that 541 also encompasses um, all interests of the debtor and the debtor's spouse oh. in community property as of okay. the case of the case that is under the sole, equal, or joint management and control of the debtor. So, um, it, you know, it, it has to meet 541A to B as well. Um, but you, you really need to be careful if you're filing a case for an individual, um, and let's say the debtor has a non-filing spouse, right. you need to research what that non-filing spouse owns too, because, you know, I've had a few cases where, you know, I always ask as a part of the 341 meeting, um, which is a meeting that's held in every bankruptcy case to essentially see what, um, have the debtor answer questions under oath about their schedules and statements and uh, make sure that they're doing everything they need to do mm -hmm. um, as, as the debtor and also to ask questions about what property is property of the estate. So, you know, if you have a non-filing spouse and they say, Oh, well, that house is my spouse's. It's not mine. Right. I ask for the deed and it has both of their names on it. That becomes entirely you know property of the estate if it was acquired during marriage with community funds so right, right um you know essentially my job as trustee is to find and sell assets of the estate and pay creditors and so there are certain expenses of the chapter seven estate like i do get a commission um that's laid out in section 326 of the code um and get reimbursed for you know actual expenses reasonable and necessary expenses of the estate um and I have to pay creditors that set out in the order of priority that set out in Section 507, right? Okay, okay. Um, so, you know, secured creditors get their lien. And then after that, you know, there's, you know, I have to pay that in that order of priority. So that's something to remember, too, if you're representing a creditor. Um, in Chapter 11, the role of a trustee is a little bit different um, because I'm essentially replacing, I'm, a, a, a now dispossessed, you know, debtor in possession. And so right. um, I have to uh, take an inventory of what is in the estate. Um, and if a plan can be filed, you know, I, I can do that uh, and essentially be the trustee, um, you know, and, or dispersing agent under the plan. Um, but that's not really common. Um, you know, typically, especially in individual 11s that, that may not be cost effective for the estate. Mm -hmm. uh, it does happen sometimes, it depends on what assets there are. Um, so, and in subchapter five, which is the new um, chapter of bankruptcy, is supposed to uh, essentially be a faster way to get through a a chapter 11 for, for debtors, if they have less than 7.5 million, I think of debt, um, 
through March of next year, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually not in possession. The debtor is still in possession. And so my okay. role was more uh, advisory and trying to uh, mediate between the debtor and the, the main creditors to try and facilitate a consensual plan. So it's less, um, I don't know, punitive, I want to say. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a long-winded first part of my answer. Um, my The second part of your question was, how did I get to do this? Yes. Um, so my father was a Chapter 7 trustee for about 10 years, okay. uh, starting from when I was in maybe junior high and ending, you know, after I was out of high school. Um, and my mom was a bankruptcy attorney, um, also here in the Rio Grande Valley. So wow. I just grew up around bankruptcy and hearing them talk about, you know, bankruptcy cases and, you know, fraudulent transfers and all this stuff just that was just like dinner table conversation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know how it is. My uh, both of my parents are in the medical field, so we would talk about their cases over Thanksgiving. Yeah, so that makes perfect of, sense. You kind of absorb it, right? Yeah, this yeah. Becomes something that you either. I feel like if if your parents do that, you either really want to do that, or you, or you want to do something else. And for me, I really wanted to do that. And it was always my dream to, to be a chapter seven trustee It's something I've always really wanted to do. I, I really enjoy it. Um, I, um, like the interactions with the debtors, um, okay. in the 341 meeting. And, uh, one of my strongest memories growing up is my dad would leave at like three in the morning to go to creditors meetings, like back when they had them in person, you know, before COVID. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, um, right. so he would have to drive like two or three hours, you know, to Laredo or okay, or okay, okay. And so I, you know, just that was just normal life to me, and so I just always wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah, enough. and so um, I was really happy when I got the job, and I plan on doing it for a long time. Now, just I guess just for people who are interested. Do you have to start out in the bankruptcy practice and then you're sort of picked up or, or you're appointed by the U.S. trustee, How, you know, oh, so, just for further clarification? I mean, I think having bankruptcy experience is helpful, but it's it's not always a, a requirement. I mean, um, for example, my dad was a he actually wasn't a lawyer, um, isn't a lawyer. He's a CPA. Interesting. So, Okay. I know of a couple of other trustees who were CPAs prior right. to being uh, put on panels. So um, it's not it's not necessarily a requirement, but I do think having some bankruptcy experience helps. Okay, but that accounting background is just as integral to to the practice. I, I really think so. I mean, okay. I had. I ran my own law firm. I had a consumer debtor practice and it, it is a very different practice running a chapter seven trustee practice or, you know, trustee practice, including right. other types of trustee work. I mean, it, I take very few private clients now because it, uh, being a trustee is very, um, 
time yeah. consuming and the reporting requirements. Yeah. Um, and my staff are more trained like bookkeepers um, mm. uh, versus traditional legal assistant work. So it's, it is very different. And so I think people that have a CPA background uh, or that type of accounting background, it, that may be why they're sort of picked up by the UST. Okay. Um, and so if, you know, let's say somebody is not trained in the law, they, they don't have their JD, but then they are picked to be a bankruptcy trustee, do they receive counsel from, from an outside party, you know, based on matters of law? They do. So you can act as trustee in your administration of the case without hiring counsel, like going to the 341 meeting, selling assets, those types of things. But you you need to hire counsel generally uh, to uh, appear in court. Uh, okay. So I also, even though I am a lawyer, um, I hire counsel with some regularity just because at a certain point you get so many cases and a case can be complex enough that right. you, you need counsel to uh, assist you. So the attorneys are paid uh, based on, you know, a contingency or an hourly basis based on what assets there are in the estate. So it's, it's kind of a really different type of work representing a trustee because you have to make sure that the assets are in the estate to pay you. I mean, that person, yeah, exactly. like me as trustee, I'm not going to pay my lawyer, right? <laughs> like it, yeah, they yeah, have yeah, to yeah. trust that the assets are in the estate to get paid. Now, this is something that sort of relates to a, a prior discussion that we had, but I wanted to know, does the bankruptcy trustee have fiduciary duties and who do they run to? Does it depend on the case? Well, the bankruptcy trustee has, um, I would say, a fiduciary duty to the estate, right? Okay. Uh, and that, as a concept, means I have to be exercising good business judgment in order to make sure that I am managing the estate proper property appropriately, um, taking care of it appropriately in a segregated estate account, and that, um, you know, I'm selling it with notice to all parties, I'm marketing it effectively, um, all those types of things to make sure that I'm maximizing the return um, on estate assets so that creditors can get paid the most that they can. What should be, I guess we, we, we've probably discussed this, but um, how does the role of a bankruptcy trustee differ from that of a party advocate? Um, we, we've already discussed how, you know, you, you mentioned that a trustee sort of has the administrative role. They care about the estate. Um, but the party advocates it sort of bifurcates into to two separate systems, which is the debtor and the creditor. Um, so are, are there any other interesting differences that people should be aware of? Well, I, I think that's a really good, like nuanced question because, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard it argued at um, conferences, for example, you know, the trustee is just another party, you know, and you can go at them as an advocate like you would anybody else. And that's, that's essentially true. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not the judge. I don't 
get to make the final decisions on things. If you disagree with my assessment on something, certainly take it to the take to court and we'll have a hearing. But um, my role is different than, let's say, a party representing a creditor, right? Like, right. If if that person is getting paid by the hour by their client and they think there's a good legal argument to be made, um, they can just keep making it, right? Yep. But but I don't I don't operate within that system because I have to make sure that there are estate assets sufficient so that me continuing to go into court on something makes not just legal sense, but business sense. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it, it, you know, sometimes I get hamstrung in a case where it's like, man, that person, I, I, I wish I could go into court and just tell them they're wrong, like on this technicality, <laughs> because I know right. I'm right and they're wrong, but I'm not going to do that because there's no money in this estate and I'm just not going to, you know, do that. Like, <laughs> understood. I'm going to file an NDR and be done with it, you know? Uh, right, right. Unless I think there's like fraud or something, then of course I'll bring it to the court's attention. But, you know, I, in, in a typical case, you know, I can't just fight to fight, I guess. And I'm not saying yeah. other people do that with regularity, but I'm saying, you know, you might have somebody representing a large secured creditor, for example, that would have the ability to do that, whereas a trustee really doesn't. Seeing as you've been on both sides, you know, you've represented clients, you have represented the estate itself. Is there something to the bankruptcy process being favorable um, to one party over the other, or is it as neutral and as fair as possible? You know, I really do feel like it is fair. Um, I feel like it, as trustee, I have to look to the higher good of what can this do to pay creditors, you know? Yeah. And you know what? Not every case can, can get me there. I do the best I can. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be people that would point out like, oh, you only got 1% of creditors in this case. Well, you know, sometimes the land doesn't sell for what you want it to, or whatever the case may be. Uh, but, you know, I really do feel like, you know, when we go into court, especially in the Southern District, um, you know, it's just where I practice. So that's where I'm uh, familiar. Uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think you're going to get a fair shake, you know, in, in front of any, any of our bankruptcy judges. I really do. Right. And this is another nuanced question, which actually goes far back to when we were discussing community property, which is a very fun subject. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, <laughs> um, so, you know, you discussed how if if one person files for bankruptcy and they're married, then that might implicate assets that are controlled by the non-filing party. So are there any protections for, say, you know, a housewife who, you know, she she inherited some money from her from her parents. She, you know, buys a, a house um, and then her husband files for bankruptcy or, you know, vice versa. It's, you know, it's the wife that files and the husband's stuff is implicated. Are there any protections for that person? So I think that is a really good question. That's something that does come up 
I'll call it the offensive use of bankruptcy in a pending family law matter. And those are really tough cases. I mean, I've, I've represented debtors. I've represented, uh, I've been the trustee in those types of cases. Um, and I've represented, uh, the non-filing spouse creditor in those cases. And they're, they're never fun. Let me put it that way. Um, for anybody, but in the example that you raised, um, I think is a good example because you're, you're looking at, um, you do have to look to what is Texas law, um, or state law as to what is the characterization of the property. Um, because if it can be fairly characterized as the non-filing spouse's sole management community or separate property, it doesn't come into the bankruptcy estate. So what you would have to do if you were looking at the non-filing spouse is say, and looking for protections is make sure that you file, uh, you gotta look at rule 7001, right? Because rule 7001 says, and I'm actually going to pull it up. You know, if you want to determine um, what is property of the estate, uh, you or recover property that uh, for yourself that you think is wrongly determined as property of the estate, right. you need to file an adversary proceeding. And that is essentially a lawsuit um, that okay. arises out of the bankruptcy case and is filed in, in bankruptcy court. So, there are ways to argue that something shouldn't be property of the estate, uh, but you need to stay on top of it. Make sure that you um, don't, you know, waive your rights and um, sit on your hands. Essentially, if your spouse files bankruptcy without you, you would be yeah. paying attention. <laughs> no, exactly. And, you know, the reason why I brought this up is I just feel like most people may not think that, that this might come up, you know, they might think, well, you know, my spouse is going through it. Ah, well, you know, but at least I will have my own assets to keep us safe. Yeah. And you, and Um, they very well could, but, um, you, you need to look at the schedules and statements very carefully, particularly if you are in, and we'll say adversarial relationship with your spouse and you're Uh involved in a family law proceeding. It's almost yeah. never good when one person files bankruptcy in the middle of a divorce. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Or even after a divorce, if they've been fighting for a while, you know, you, you need to really make sure, you know, on both sides of that, if you're as the debtor or the non filing spouse, that you're being very careful about um, what you're doing very intentionally. Have, have you seen that? That honestly sounds like a rough go, like a perfect storm. Um, I have, uh, and yeah. I can't get into to too many details, uh, given the sure. some pending, pending matters, but sure. uh, I will say that, um, they are challenging cases, family law and bankruptcy cases are very challenging. And, um, you have to do a fair amount of, um, acting as, a 
you know, we're also counselors, right, as as attorneys. Oh, yeah. And so, unfortunately, in those cases, there tends to be a lot of emotion involved. Um, and so you have to really sit down and make sure that you are advising your client, uh, if you're on the debtor or non-filing spouse side, that, you know, you're they're looking at this from um, the most objective way possible uh, in order to go forward. And that can be difficult. No, that's true. Um, and I guess speaking about the best outcome possible, what would be the best outcome for a debtor or for a creditor? Um, to get paid. <laughs> okay, right, <laughs> right. For, for a debtor, if, if you get paid, it's a surplus case. And there's there yeah. so many assets of the estate that you can not only pay the trustee commission and expenses or, you know, other administrative expenses, um, you can pay all your creditors in full plus get money back. Now that's a good day. Um, okay. uh, for creditors, you can get paid. If you, obviously, if you can get paid in full, that's great. Um, but honestly, you know, in a chapter seven where a majority of cases are no asset cases, meaning um, there is not any property uh, for me to administer as, as a trustee, um, it's all exempt. It's protected under the law. So if I can get right. creditors paid, uh, even a small percentage, um, I consider that a win. I think that's a good day for the system. I, I, I like being able to send those checks out. So um, okay. yeah, I think getting paid is the goal. Now, I, I guess this is, you know, once again, we're, we're going to dive deep into this nerddom. Um, so Texas's exemption laws provide for, you know, plenty of protections. And, and as you've stated, there are numerous, there are numerous cases in which um, the exemptions will effectively protect most of the assets. So, you know, why would a creditor go ahead with the proceedings in Texas, as opposed to, I, you know, I'm not sure if you can change venue or something like that. Is, is it simply based on um, where the debtor resides? Well, it, so it is, and I, you are causing me to look up the venue statute. So there is. I, I, I love these pop quizzes, by the way. <laughs> it keeps really us both sharp. Get me looking up the venue statute all this stuff. Um, let's see. I found it. Venue of cases Perfect. under Title 11, 28 U.S.C. 1408. I knew it was 14 something. I found it. Uh, so it is based on where the debtor uh, is domiciled or resides or the principal place of business in the United States. Um, so, you know, there can be some, you know, requests to change that. Um, it, 1412 deals with the change of venue. Um, and so venue really becomes a much bigger issue once you get complex cases, right? Because you're dealing yeah. with a lot of money, um, employees, uh, pension plans, those types of things. And so the selection of where you file um, is, is a really big consideration in those cases. And those corporations have more options because they're worldwide corporations with contacts in various different places throughout the United States. So they could actually say, do we want to file in Delaware right. or do we want to file in Houston? Right. Um, but right. for the typical right. consumer, that's not going to be an issue. And so a creditor can't come in and say in a com consumer case, oh, 
um, you know, actually, I want you to file, and you know, I want to move this to Minnesota, where the state law is more favorable to me. You know, that's just not something sure. that they could do. All right. Well, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> just yes. as a consumer, it sounds great. Um, is there anything unique or special about doing bankruptcy in South Texas? You know, I, I think there is because, um, it, you know, I was born and raised here. You know, I, I um, well, actually, I wasn't born in South Texas. I was raised in South Texas from the time I was seven. Um, I was born in Houston, but, um, you know, this is just what I consider to be my home. And um, I think it's yeah. really special to be able to practice bankruptcy in South Texas because it's a fairly small community. Um, and I've known a lot of these people literally since I was a child. So uh, I, I really yeah. enjoy that. Um, but also from the perspective of, of what the client base is like, you have people that, um, you know, many of whom live um, below the poverty line um, in some instances that, you know, really need this. They really need bankruptcy to give them the relief okay. so that they're not hounded by, yeah. you know, for example, a payday loan company or whatever. You know, they're one of the misconceptions that I see in some consumer cases, kind of hearkening back to one of your earlier questions, is people are afraid in the cases of where they have really aggressive debt collectors that they're going to go to jail, you know, and they're, they're oh, not, yeah. oh, I yeah. mean, uh, you know, go to jail just for not paying a debt. But um, I really, it is meaningful, I think, to be able to work in an area where you get to help people that um, are in dire financial need. Uh, there is a real need for that. Um, and so i appreciate that but there's also a, a really thriving uh business community down here um but they are they do tend to be smaller businesses than you might see file for bankruptcy for example in the houston area so um it, yeah. you know that to me is still really great to practice where i live um and work uh, so I, I really enjoy living and working here Perfect. No, and I, I think it's great. I mean, every every part of the United States should be afforded the same amount of, you know, um, aggressive legal counsel and, you know, representation as, as any other. Like, that Absolutely. should be the goal, you know, for for an orderly and just society. So thank yeah, you for well, your thank work. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a, couple, a couple more questions. Um, there's... There's one here, and then there's one that's like not written down. So I hope you're ready <laughs> for it. Pop quiz. <laughs> yeah. So, so the first one is, um, what would you say to a young law student who's interested in bankruptcy work? Um, how, what could they do to get ready for that practice? Well, I would say definitely um, keep up your curiosity and um, look into becoming a bankruptcy practitioner. We really need to expand um, the reach of having more people interested in, in doing bankruptcy and expand in terms of diversity to uh, the number of people that want to practice bankruptcy. And so it's, it's a really fun area of law in that it touches everything. 
you know, it, you get yep. so much interesting experience. And to me, it's the perfect mix of courtroom work without being a litigious practice generally. Um, and yeah. it's more, especially in, in debtor work, um, it's more emotion-based practice. Um, and so you don't, you get courtroom experience and you're working in federal court with some of the best judges in the country, really. So it is a really exciting practice area. And what I would say to get ready for doing this work would be, of course, take all the bankruptcy classes you can <laughs> in law school. Um, right. But also, um, you know, do some some interning at on the consumer level too, if you can. Um, the State Bar of Texas bankruptcy section has a young lawyers section, um, and, and we have some outreach programs. Um, you know, that are geared toward law clerks. Um, but if, even if you're not clerking for a judge, the bankruptcy section offers a lot of great CLEs. Um, I would say, yeah. you know, take advantage of that um, and just get all the experience you can trying to uh, meet people in the field um, through those really good organizations. All right. And uh, maybe some of those CLEs have been run by you, not perhaps? Run by me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm on the All right. committee. I'm, I'm one of many and definitely not the smartest person in any of those rooms. <laughs> well, uh, in, in any event, you know, people definitely um, appreciate the support that you've provided to those. So my last question, and I'm a huge foodie. And uh, I know for a fact, South Texas has some, okay. some great food. So can you give us like maybe two to three amazing restaurants for people who, you know, maybe they're counsel on a bankruptcy case or they're going down there to work on some some uh, fun oil and gas transaction? Where should I go oh, and yeah, eat? That was, that was definitely a pop quiz question. Um, so one of my favorite restaurants um, is Salt in McAllen. Um, the quality of the food is just amazing. It's very close to the courthouse. Um, and it's just, it, it's on the higher end price wise, like if you want a nice dinner. Um, but the service is amazing yeah. and the, the food is just, is just really wonderful. Um, so that is probably one of my favorite restaurants in town. Um, South Texas has so much just amazing food. Um, one of the old standards that's been around for like, you know, 25 years that to me, I always go to on the island is this is the sea ranch. Okay. Um, and yes, the sea it, ranch it's called the sea ranch. Um, so that is right um, overlooking the bay. Um, and I went there all the time as a kid and I still go um, with my husband every time we go to the island. Um, and the, the scallops are so good. They do such a good job with their scallops. Like I, I want to go out there right now and eat their scallops. Uh, I'm sold. Yeah. I'm, I'm about to drive down. Um, uh, one place I really love, um, is called super cream. Um, it's actually, um, a Mexican okay. chain, I think. Uh, so it's, and then they have a location in Brownsville. Um, 
and they just have really good, like typical Mexican plates. And I think it's really well prepared yeah. and it's, it's really good. So um, there are many, many others that I just can't think of right now, but um, that's one of the things I love about South Texas is the food is so amazing. Oh, that's awesome. It, yeah. It sounds like South Texas is uh, well represented by you <laughs> well, and also well-fed. <laughs> yeah. So we have a really <laughs> that's good great. Bar. Honestly, uh, the, the bar down here is really good. We've got really good consumer and, and business lawyers. So um, yeah. uh, well surrounded uh, by good peers. Wonderful. Well, um, once again, I just want to thank you, Catherine, for uh, stopping by on uh, on highlights and uh, wish you have a good day and best. Thank you. Rest- so- thank you for listening to another episode of the Highlights Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlightspodcast at gmail We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.